Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Tyler Ventura, the research analyst at Diamond Hill that covers brokers, financial technology, and consumer financials. Tyler is joining me on the podcast today to discuss his recent industry perspectives that examines the evolution in online brokerages and the emergence of Robinhood, a trading app that has been in the news quite a bit lately. You can find his piece at www.diamond-hill.com. Tyler is here to provide some background on the rise of Robinhood and retail trading, as well as its impact on financial markets and other online brokers. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tyler Venture. Tyler, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to discuss all the changes that have gone on in the online brokerage world in the past couple of years. Uh, though many believe that the online broker commission war began with Charles Schwab eliminating commissions on stocks and ETF trades, it was Interactive Brokers that took the first step, launching a zero commission stock and ETF trading platform called Interactive Brokers Lite in late September. Uh, regardless of who fired the first shot, major online brokers like Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade eliminated commissions for stocks and ETFs, changing the landscape of online brokerages. So Tyler, for those like myself that don't know the history of the race to zero, can you walk me through how we got to this point? Hey, Doug. Uh, yeah, thanks. It's, uh, it's good to be here. I mean, you know, the online online broker wars, you know, is is sort of a, you know, many decades long saga. I mean, if I had to point to a couple main reasons, you know, for the race to zero. It's probably, you know, some combination of technology and competition over time. From kind of a high level standpoint, I mean, any competitive marketplace customers will ultimately demand, you know, better pricing over time. You know, in, in brokerage, all the firms started offering more services to customers over time as well. And the assets that the customers brought to the firms became increasingly valuable. So I mean, the firms kind of figured that out and they, they kind of realized that the cost of customer acquisition, the value of the asset levels uh, kind of had a relationship to decreasing trading commissions, um, you know, and declining trading commissions at some points became instrumental to some of those efforts. And, you know, marketing was certainly a huge part of it. I mean, I think we've all seen the, the billions of dollars spent on those ad campaigns over, over the decades. You could probably remember most of the really catchy ones, some of the Super Bowl commercials and you know, think of like the E-Trade baby um, yeah. campaigns, campaigns like that, that that really stand out, right? I remember those. Yeah, I mean, the, the really high dollar commissions that, I mean, you know, people would consider totally unfathomable, you know, the 50 and $60 trade uh, type commissions are really kind of a relic of a very old school brokerage. I mean, I guess, you know, for anyone really interested in kind of market history, I mean, there was a, there is a role that deregulation played in all that. Um, I mean, without, I guess, going down a, a rabbit hole on the topic of market structure and all the corresponding like technology and, and issues there. Um, I mean, most of us remember having to trade in round lots and prices were quoted in fractions or wide bid ask spreads and longer order fulfillment time, you know, et cetera. Um, and you look at the marketplace now, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of work to get where we are, but I mean, ultimately, I think you have to give the regulators and industry participants and the exchanges some credit you know, over a long period of time here, you know, for their roles in orchestrating all this. It's probably a golden age of, you know, with regard to being a retail uh, player today. I mean, with fractional shares and, and tradings like virtually instantaneous, there's, 
pretty much no cost, really no noticeable cost. I mean, I, I don't think most retail investors really even would even notice or care about a, a spread, a bid ask spread in these super narrow, uh, efficient kind of equity markets. So there, there is a lot behind the scenes, but broad strokes, I think, um, you know, it's, that gets to a little bit to where we are. I mean, kind of beyond the scope probably of this conversation, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the, the practice of payment for order flow. I mean, it gets a lot of, a lot of press and that's where brokers send customer orders to the high-speed trading firms in return for, for cash payments. And that's been around a while. It's, it's been written about a ton. I mean, the SEC is all over it. It's, it's part of the market structure at this point. Um, but it, that's another big reason why uh, it sort of helped retail commissions get to zero. Um, yeah, I mean, that practice has its, its critics and it's complex. Um, it's all about execution, speed, and, and scale. So I guess to sum up, you know, those points, I mean, look, yeah, it's, it's technology and, and competition and, and, you know, and, and then all the structural stuff behind the scenes. So on the heels of, of the, the completion, I guess you would say, of the race to zero, you know, the impact on the company's stocks was, you know, immediately felt. With Schwab, TD, and E-Trade down substantially on the news of zero commissions, you know, on this podcast, we've talked to various members of the firm here at Diamond Hill about the commitment to long-term investment horizons, but, you know, we're also human, and, and seeing that kind of immediate impact can be hard to incorporate into an analysis. How did you incorporate this kind of drastic change in the business model into your calculation of intrinsic value for these and, and other brokerage companies? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, we were kind of going down the path, you know, for, for quite some time with these firms. I, I guess I'd also mention, I mean, Fidel, Fidelity is a privately owned uh, company, but that's another very large, very admirable uh, industry leader who, you know, is also uh, participates in, in all this. But, uh, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say that we all thought trading was a melting ice cube, so to speak, but it, it sort of started to look that way for some time. And I think by the time it became inevitable that that trade commissions could go to zero, um, I, I think for most of these firms, the, the actual revenue hit was pretty manageable. I mean, it, it wasn't a material uh, revenue item for the firms at the time, but it was you know meaningful enough that probably played a big factor in, in some of the consolidation that was to follow that actually actually followed uh, relatively swiftly, uh, meaningfully, you know, at, after the the kind of race to zero was was completed. But I mean, these most of these firms have all been, had all been kind of hashing it out in areas like cash management and investment advice for, for many years. Um, and you know, investors expect to continue to receive you know the latest and greatest innovation and services, and they always want it for less money. <laughs> so, you know, what really makes these companies valuable is how sticky the assets are. Um, I mean, it just isn't fun to, to move your accounts around unless you really have to. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. We saw those those sizable transactions that you were talking about in, in the brokerage world. So TD Ameritrade was bought by Charles Schwab. Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade. Um, you know, we've covered a little bit of why. Um, are you expecting to see more in you know the coming months and even into the next year? Yeah, uh, gosh, I would think so. Um, I mean, you know, the size may vary. I mean, and you do get a lot of these kind of build or buy decisions, like you like you do in any business, especially when technology's, you know, playing a, a disruptive role. Not, you know, not everybody makes large acquisitions. I mean, Fidelity, for example, you know, is not very acquisition driven. Uh, I mean, again, they're you know privately held, but but they're important to pay attention to. Um, I mean, look, scale is important, so. 
in order to offer services more cheaply while staying profitable, I mean, the companies need to spread costs over a larger base. And uh, technological capabilities matter a great deal. Um, there's a never increasing amount of innovation that firms can you know, buy or copy. And there's new products and strategies are constantly being created. So, I mean, growth and market share matter a lot, but I mean, there's an overarching reality that in this industry, assets tend to be a very important measure of strength. And it's probably not lost in anybody at this point that, you know, the future's digital. I mean, the, the present's pretty much digital already. <laughs> um, and that's across customer segments. I mean, you know, you can see it in the, in the lower, you know, lower end, so to speak, you have low cost automated, you know, so what, what you call robo solutions uh, offerings. All the way up the spectrum. I mean, you know, the ultra high net worth customer um, is increasingly being being serviced with a lot of technology now as well. Um, so I mean, look, I, you know, you mentioned uh, you know kind of Morgan Stanley and Schwab. I mean, those are two industry leaders we have you know kind of a long history with here uh, at Diamond Hill. Yeah, I mean, inherent in our investment process, I mean, we utilize a long term time horizon and we analyze business fundamentals. But you know, inherent in that is the notion we like to invest in companies that can maintain it strong competitive advantage over a long period of time. And in business, right? I mean, companies need to adapt and react to challenges that arise. It's, that's a reality of business. And as analysts, we constantly monitor emerging trends and disruptive technology and competitive dynamics. And I mean, that helps us, well, helps us evaluate whether you know, management teams are positioning you know, appropriately for the future. And so far for, for both of those companies, uh, you know, they've done a fantastic job in that regard. So you talk about disruptors, you know, and we can't we can't have this conversation without talking about Robinhood, uh, which, as you point out in your piece, has kind of become the poster child for retail trading. So let's let's just avoid some of the controversy around the company and let's focus instead on on the business model and the success that they have found. So tell me, if you would, about the history of Robinhood and how it has become such a success in such a short period of time. I mean. Uh... Speaking of, of uh, disruptive technology and uh, yeah. competitive dynamics, well-funded startups from, from Silicon Valley have been disrupting the industry for a little while now. Um, I mean, right now, Robinhood's hot. I mean, it's probably one of the most, you know, I'd say probably in, in this industry, maybe the one, one of the most important startups to really come out in the last 25 years, I, I would think. And it's really remarkable to, to kind of witness what, what it's achieved so far. A lot of it you know, it's, it's viral growth. And I know the, the gamification aspects get a lot of press, um, but being mobile, you know, device-driven experience was pretty innovative. Um, I'm not sure the gamification aspects are really gonna stick around over time. I mean, it's probably early days there from a, a regulatory standpoint and how, how far they can, you know, continue to, to push that aspect of, of their experience. But it certainly seems like, you know, I mean, the ease of use, the user experience, the, the various simplification aspects, certainly all the, all the cost, uh, low cost uh, of it all. Um, I think some of the education and, you know, communal type aspects are very interesting for the industry to watch. If you look at, if you look at sort of the, the trading and social forums that are kind of built around all this, it's, it's sort of on steroids compared to the old, you know, message board days of, of the 90s. Um, I mean, a part of that, again, ties into to this, you know, the mobile device-driven um, model. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I know, yeah, I guess I didn't want to talk a lot about payment for order flow, but uh, I mentioned it earlier. I mean, that right now is basically the most significant source of, of Robinhood's revenue at the moment, and it, and it's, it draws a little bit of criticism. Um, I, I mean, I guess, look, on that topic, I'd say if we're, if we're sitting down here one day years from now, um, 
and we're still talking about Robin Hood, I, I, I wouldn't think that that, uh, that would still be the case with regard to payment for it being their most significant revenue you know, line item. Uh, if they're successful, they're going to have to, you know, really grow with their customers and kind of hang on to them, you know, as they move on their, their financial journeys and obtain more wealth and need more service. Um, <clears throat> Robinhood's certainly trying to go down that path to diversify their offerings and, you know, they're, they're well capitalized and, and are able to do so. So, you know, as we've shown, I mean, there's, as we've talked about here, I mean, there's plenty of large scale players in a, in a pretty healthy competitive environment as you move up market and kind of deepen into people's financial lives. So it's hard to handicap where it'll all end up for Robinhood. It's interesting to watch. I mean, there are, of course, a number of digital startups in the financial services landscape. I mean, it's almost mind boggling. So, I mean, you, you almost have a, a perfect storm of conditions for Robinhood in 2020, right? I mean, you have, you know, for retail investors, I mean, that, that whole narrative of, you know, stay home, work from home, trade cheaply, stimulus checks. It's yeah. uh, certainly there's a little more to it than that. But, it, you know, it's interesting as an industry, we've kind of lamented and debated for quite a while about the death of the retail investor and whether, whether it would ever come back. Um, and so all the volume and price action related to all this is, is pretty crazy. We've also actually lamented the, you know, the lack of IPOs and new issues, and we're seeing a boom there as well. And, I mean, how crazy is all the SPAC activity? <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly there's going to be some fallout associated with it all. Um, but I mean, you know, look, the, the multiple pathways to becoming a public company are very real. You know, you have a traditional IPO, direct listing, direct listing with a capital raise, you know, SPAC mania. Uh, I, I, I do think you got to give the exchanges like, you know, the NYC, you know, they've been pretty instrumental in that regard and, and get a lot of credit. Um, it seemed like, gosh, almost forever we talked about all these well-funded large, you know, tech and fintech companies that were staying private longer at these huge valuations and were very well capitalized. And, and now it seems like the logjam has burst. And, you know, of course, some of that reminds me of the late 90s as well. And maybe it gets me a little more worried. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's interesting in, in how you're talking about Robin Hood. And, and I haven't spent that much time thinking about it. Um, but yeah, you know, Robin Hood is a, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more like a transactional. And I can see the younger generation, not that I'm incredibly old, but I am older, um, you know, in and out and, and gamification, if you will, of the market. Whereas as you get older and you have kids and you have to start thinking about college and retirement, that's not going to serve your purpose. And that's where you have these other platforms that provide retirement planning and, and asset allocation, all these different things. So it's, it's interesting. It will be interesting to see, as you said, where Robinhood goes from here. Uh, and I know it's, it's, it's something that we look at because of its impact on the entire industry. Uh, but it is, it's fascinating. It'll be very interesting to watch. And, and we, we may have you on in a year or two to, to discuss where it is at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the last question, second to last question, I'll say, you know, you talked about the importance of digitalization in the wealth management industry and its impact on the end investor. We just talked about it a little bit with solutions. Um, but what are some of the innovations and solutions that you've seen uh, that's creating some of the change in the industry? I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's about serving client needs. And, and like, you know, we mentioned, I mean, people you know, they're increasingly living their lives in a digital manner. I mean, and wealth management's going down that path, you know, and, the, and technology really allows all firms to invent new products and services and, and get them to scale. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the biggest trend really around digital s solutions is, you know, anything that's low cost, tax efficient and customizable. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned the robo, you know, low cost robo offerings. Um, 
But I mean, look, I, I think you saw, you know, with the emergence of firms like uh, Wealthfront and Betterment, um, you saw all the all the large firms immediately go down that that path and and have competing offerings. So I think you'll see you'll see more of that. Um, I mean, you think about the ETF uh, and what the ETF has done. I mean, there's you know, direct indexing arguably could be sort of the next wave of that. You know, it offers the ability for for tailored portfolios based on uh, customized indices or factors. So I mean, there, there's a lot of things like that. But I would say, I mean, look, it's it's definitely going to be around digital, low cost, uh, tax efficient, and, and customizability. Um, I mean, it's it, look, it's uh, it's never ending and it's never a dull day. Which makes it fun. Mm-hmm. So uh, my last question for you is is not work related. I'm going to ask you. I know you're a baseball fan. Uh-oh. So I'm going to ask you now, and this is uh, late January. Teams will report, hopefully, if things are more normalized in March or April. I'm going to ask you for your World Series pick right now, and I won't be offended if you don't select my Cleveland baseball team is what I would call them going forward uh, because they lost Lindor and, and they're going through some downsizing, I'll call it, but they still have some good pitching. But uh, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you what your teams are for the World Series this year. Yeah, I mean, my, uh, I actually had the, the privilege to attend a World Series game in, uh, in Cleveland back in, uh, in 2016 to watch my, yeah. my, my Cubbies do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it actually just, it was just a lot less expensive to, uh, <laughs> to go there than, than Wrigley. I mean, uh, but t- ticket-wise, it's, it was pretty insane. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a pretty epic, uh, epic time in 2016. Unfortunately for the, for the Cubs, I might have to become a, a, a suffering Cubs fan again because this offseason hasn't hasn't looked really really good for uh, for the Cubbies. I mean, look, I I root for the National League, so I guess at this point I'd probably say I'd like to see the Padres uh, knock off the mighty the mighty Dodgers. Um, yep. You know, the Padres certainly have an exciting team, so I think that'd be for me the most fun uh, fun team to root for. And I, you know, I think maybe they have a shot. They they really bulked up on some pitching, so. You give that young lineup another year experience and they can make some noise. All right. You heard it here, Padres. Uh, I think that would be kind of interesting. They've got a good young team. I, I've had the privilege of going to that ballpark a couple of times now, and it's it's a beautiful park. Um, I really enjoyed it. So, Tyler, I want to thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's it's been painless for you. And everyone check out the Industry Perspectives piece, www.diamond-hill.com. And, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon, Tyler. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Thanks a lot. And uh, talk to you soon, man. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.